Hey there. Welcome back to another season of Novel Conversations. Before we start the show, I wanted to recommend another great podcast about books. It's the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. If you enjoy listening to Novel Conversations, I think you'll really enjoy this podcast as well. The Professional Book Nerds Podcast offers up book recommendations and interviews your favorite authors every Monday and Thursday. Both Jill Grunenwald and Adam Sokol have spent their careers in the book world and have an inside look on exciting books you're going to love. In addition to their twice-a-week episodes, each month they preview the best new books coming out. They're not just book nerds, they're professional book nerds. Visit professionalbooknerds.com, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or check them out on our own network, evergreenpodcast.com. All right, up next, Novel Conversations. I'm Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This conversation is about the novel Slaughterhouse-Five, or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death, by Kurt Vonnegut. With that said, I'd like to introduce and welcome our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Smith and Peter Toomey. Katie, Peter, hello. Hi, thank you. Thanks for inviting us, Frank. Absolutely, my pleasure. Uh, Katie, Peter, before we start, I want to read a brief summary of Slaughterhouse-Five, and then we'll get into our discussion. Written by Kurt Vonnegut and published in 1969, Slaughterhouse-Five is the story of Billy Pilgrim, who has become unstuck in time. Billy Pilgrim is a soldier who has survived the 1945 firebombing of Dresden, then lives simultaneously in his past as a young American POW and in his future as a well-cared-for resident of a zoo on the planet Tralfamador and in his present as a middle-aged optometrist in Ilium, New York. Or maybe he doesn't live as a soldier during the firebombing of Dresden or as a well-cared resident in a zoo on Tralfamador or as a middle-aged optometrist in Ilium, New York. He might just be a writer writing a really good anti-war story. We'll find out a little bit more about that as we get into our discussion. All right, let's talk about the main character and if there actually is just one main character or two main characters. Peter, is there one character or are there two, maybe even more characters in this novel? Well, I read it as one character, Frank. Uh, I see Billy Pilgrim being the main character in the first couple of chapters. Now, the author is telling the story of how he came to write the book. But after that, it's just Billy Pilgrim's story. Katie, do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I agree with that. I think, though, that Kurt Vonnegut, the author, two or three times in the middle of the story insinuates himself, especially during the wartime moments when he's describing what's happening to the soldiers in a big crowd. Suddenly he'll say a bit of dialogue that happened to one of the soldiers, and then he'll say, that was me. I said that. That was me. So he is narrating it, but I don't think he is Billy Pilgrim. All right, well, let's talk about the way this book is structured. The first chapter is written by our narrator. We're not really sure right off the bat who this narrator is, but we do come to learn within the first chapter that he's been trying to write a story about the firebombing of Dresden in 1945. The narrator is an American POW who survived that firebombing and has always meant to tell that story, but up until now has been unable to write it. At the end of chapter one, he says, now I can tell the story. Here's my story. And then he moves on with chapter two, the story of Billy Pilgrim. Neither of you thought the narrator was Billy Pilgrim? 
No, no, because I had it in the back of my mind the whole time, the narrator's introduction to the book. And I felt that he was maybe a guiding hand or a guardian angel of the main character, but that Billy Pilgrim was the author's invention. And that was the way he wanted to tell the story of Dresden through Billy Pilgrim. Well, then that begs the question, if Billy Pilgrim was an invention of the author, is this a true story, Katie? That's a good question. I think that it is a true story. The Dresden firebomb experience that the author had. Now, I'm analyzing, but I think he had to distance himself from that experience and write it from the eyes of someone else. And Billy Pilgrim seems like such an innocent, and I think that's how he wanted to present this horrendous war experience, through the eyes of a total innocent. All right, well, then let's talk about Billy Pilgrim as our main character. But Katie, before we get to Billy Pilgrim, let's talk real briefly about the form of this novel. This is a nonlinear narrative. It does not start at the beginning, and it does not end at the end. It starts somewhere in the middle of Billy Pilgrim's life, and then he, through a belief of his that he's traveling in time, gives us different parts of his life throughout this novel. We might start when he's 35 years old as an optometrist, then we go back to when he's an 18-year-old POW in Dresden, then we skip forward and he's living in a zoo on another planet. Yes, we will talk about that other planet. This is a novel that skips around, but let's try to pull Billy Pilgrim's life together as a linear story from start to finish. So, Peter, this is an 18-year-old boy when World War II is happening. He joins the Army, they make him a chaplain's assistant, and then they send him to Belgium. Yes. Yeah, he's in the war, and he's kind of a reluctant warrior. And then he loses the group that he's with. So he travels with a few people for a while, and then he becomes a prisoner of war. And eventually he does get sent to Dresden. Yes, he goes to Dresden. A couple of days after the bombing of Dresden, he's found— and that's when he goes back to his home and decides to go to optometry school. And he interrupts his education for a while to become hospitalized. He actually has himself committed. We're led to believe some sort of post-traumatic stress syndrome, although, of course, they would have called it battle fatigue or shell shock at that time. That's right. And Katie, do you want to pick it up from there? He commits himself to a mental institution, tries to get himself healthy. Does he succeed? Well, he meets one character, Elliot Rosewater, who's actually a recurring character in other Vonnegut novels. Elliot Rosewater is a patient in the bed next to him, and he also eventually proposes to the head optometrist's daughter. I don't know if he really gets better. I don't know if that's the point where he becomes unstuck in time. It's kind of unclear when that happens. But Peter, he doesn't only meet Elliot Rosewater in this hospital. He's actually introduced to another person, although not directly. Yes. Uh, in the hospital, Elliot Rosewater is reading the books of Kilgore Trout, science fiction novelist. And we get a couple of titles that Kilgore Trout has written, but apparently we're also led to believe that no one reads Kilgore Trout because he's a really bad writer. And actually, this is how Rosewater explains it to us. If Kilgore could only write, Rosewater exclaimed, Kilgore Trout's unpopularity was deserved. His prose was frightful. Only his ideas were good. And I think we all know a few novelists like that, don't we? All right, so we've got Billy Pilgrim in basically a mental institution suffering from what they've called shell shock. Katie, you said that he proposes to the daughter of the head optometrist in town. I called it a love match. You're not so sure it was a love match. Well, she's not a very attractive woman. She's very overweight and thought that she would never marry, that nobody would ever want to marry her. But Billy thinks that because he's seen the future, his own future, he knows that the marriage is quite satisfactory, maybe even a little bit more than that. So he proposes to her. 
And Peter, they do get married and they do seem to have a satisfactory life. He becomes very wealthy. He's got six or seven optometry offices in the town. He's got a lot of assistants working for him. But his life is not a happy one. Well, I didn't think his life was unhappy. I just think that he had this strange inner life where he kept going back into his memories. But as our story progresses, more bad things happen to our character, Billy Pilgrim. After he's been in town for several years as a leading optometrist, he decides to get on a plane and go to an optometry convention. He's with his father-in-law and several other optometrists, and they're in an airplane. And he knows it's going to happen before it does. Well, at least he's telling us he knows that the plane is going to crash, and he prepares himself for that crash. Right. And he and the co-pilot are the only survivors, and he goes back to the hospital, this time for his physical wounds, although one of the wounds is to his head. And his wife is racing to the hospital from Ilium, New York, and she gets into a slight car accident, but it tears off the muffler from her car. And it's presented to us that this is basically a fender bender, a little accident. Right. No one's hurt. They were both wearing seatbelts. And by the time she gets to the hospital parking lot, she just slumps over and she's died from carbon monoxide poisoning because of the exhaust fumes from her car. So Billy is now faced with the loss of his wife, his father-in-law, his employees, and the other optometrists. And it's then and there that he decides that he's going to tell the world about the time travel and the planet Tralfamador and what time really means, and that he shouldn't be concerned or cry over someone's death, because really, they're not dead. They're just in bad shape for the moment. Actually, Katie, I'm going to stop you there for a moment. Let's not get into the Tralfamador theory of time relativity just yet. I want to continue with our narrative a little bit more. You say this is when he decides he's going to tell his story. How does he do that, Peter? Well, he goes to New York City, and he tries to get the media interested in him. And I think a radio show has him on, but his daughter finds out about it and tries to restrain him from doing that. Well, he actually gets on a radio program and he tells people that there are aliens among us. And there are other guests and they think that he's one of them. And so they really don't say anything. When you say like one of them, you mean an author? Uh, Yeah. And then it becomes clear that when he starts to tell his story, that he really wasn't invited to be on this panel. (laughs) So they squeeze him out. But he does get some time to tell his story on the air. Well, now let's talk a little bit about his time travel story. We've gotten this story throughout the novel because during his various time shifts, when we're going back and forth through Billy Pilgrim's life, he's telling us why he's able to do this time shift, because he's basically been taken over by these aliens from this planet Tralfamador. So we know this, but of course the world doesn't know this yet, but he's now going to tell the story. He was captured by aliens and they put him in a zoo. But I think the most important thing that the aliens, the Tralfamadorians, taught him that he wants to tell the world is that time has no meaning. And what they showed him is that time is like looking at a mountain range and that you see the whole thing all at once. So death is not permanent, forever state of existence or non-existence. It's just a moment in time. But all the other moments are also moments in time, and you can go back and forth to them. So you're only dead just for a little while but you'll be coming back. So if you see someone who happens to be dead at the moment you see them, don't necessarily grieve for them. Just remember the moments prior when they were alive, or perhaps moments to come when they'll be alive again. Don't just focus on the time you happen to find them. And that's because the Tralfamadorians really see four dimensions, and time is their fourth dimension. They see all of time all together. Right. There's a really good line in the book. It says, And Tralfamadorians don't see human beings as two-legged creatures either. 
They see them as great millipedes with baby legs at one end and old people's legs at the other. Exactly. They see our entire growth all at the same time. But then Peter, as you said, he's basically tossed off this radio program, goes back to his home in Ilium, New York, to the care of his daughter, who thinks he's going crazy, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. She wants to take care of him and thinks that he can't take care of himself anymore. And it's really about this time in the story that we're told that Billy Pilgrim knows the exact time and place of his death. And he tells us he's going to go to this meeting where he knows he's going to be killed, but he's peaceful about it. He goes, and although he's not actually killed in our novel, we know that his death takes place. And that's basically the end of our narrative as we've reconstructed it for Billy Pilgrim. All right. I would like to bring up that he says the day of his death is February 13th, 1976. And the firebombing of Dresden is February 13th, 1945. Katie, you know, I'm glad you mentioned these dates because those dates are important. It's important that Billy Pilgrim was killed on an anniversary of the firebombing in Dresden. But wait, I don't want to reveal what happens with Billy Pilgrim's death just yet. I want to take a quick break now and talk about a wonderful opportunity, a new service called Literati, the leading kids' book club in America. Right now, with schools, libraries, and bookstores all closed down, how do you keep your kids learning and growing? Books from Literati, the number one book club for kids, are the best place to start. Literati is a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids by delivering great stories right to your doorstep. Literati knows that home deliveries will be critical in meeting your need for uplifting educational materials in the coming weeks. And reading books together will help create a time of adventure and bonding for your family. And it has real educational benefits. We all know that kids who read books have better vocabularies and longer attention spans. Each Literati box contains five beautiful books based on a theme and contains exclusive original art and a personalized note to your child. Some of our listeners know that I used to work for Borders Bookstores. For me, when I was in a bookstore, every day was Christmas because I got a new box of books every day. Just imagine how your kids will feel to have a box of books delivered right to their doorstep, personalized for them every single month. I think it will feel like Christmas for them every single time they get a new box of books. And Literati actively curates the stories to spark interest and soften the heart, which saves you hours of searching the stores or scrolling through lists of books online. And Literati will beat the Amazon list price. And you only keep the favorites and you send back the rest for free. This means you're only paying for the books your kids love. And as fans of Novel Conversations, we're giving our listeners a special limited time offer. Right now, for a limited time, Go to literati.com slash novel for 25% off your first two orders. This is their best offer available anywhere. But to get it, you have to go to literati.com slash novel for 25% off your first two orders. One more time, that's literati.com slash novel. Now, let's get back to our discussion about the novel Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. All right, Katie, Peter, we promised to take Billy back to Dresden because it's the events in Dresden that actually lead to Billy Pilgrim's death. But actually, he was not captured in Dresden. I think he was captured in Luxembourg. Peter? Yeah, yeah. He had been separated from his platoon, and he was traveling with a couple of other soldiers, one of whom kept having to rescue him because he just wanted to hang back and just not have to worry about marching and doing anything anymore. But when they were captured by the Germans with other American soldiers— and with other prisoners of war, they were all funneled into Dresden. Right. They were sent into the interior of Germany. This is really right at the end of the war. The Germans were sending soldiers to the front and sending all their prisoners back into Germany. They were going to be working in Dresden. And they get to Dresden and they find a beautiful city. 
This is a city that has not been bombed. There's no military bases there. There's no manufacturing there. There's no bomb factories. So the city has basically been spared by the Allies. And actually, the work they're given isn't all that bad either. They were working in a syrup factory. And they were all happy because it was such good food. And they hadn't been used to having any food. And they just kept finding spoons all over the factory and spooning the syrup. And actually, they were working at the Syrup Factory, but the name of the novel comes from their living quarters, which was in an old slaughterhouse, Slaughterhouse 5. And it's also about this time that we learn Billy Pilgrim has made an enemy, an enemy that's going to come back 40 years later and be the cause of his death. When Billy Pilgrim gets separated from the platoon, he's traveling with a couple of other soldiers, as I said. One of them, Roland Weary, keeps rescuing him. And then when they finally get captured and are on kind of a troop transport, Roland Weary dies. But he makes another soldier, Paul Lazaro, promise that he would kill Billy Pilgrim. Roland Weary believes that Billy Pilgrim is the cause of his death. It's because Billy Pilgrim was so indifferent to his surroundings and so lackadaisical in his hiding, really, that causes them to get captured. And it's because they're captured that they end up on this transport. And it's because they're on this transport that Roland Weary is going to die. And he wants revenge on Billy Pilgrim. So he makes another soldier, as you said, Paul Lazaro, promise someday, somehow, some way, to get Billy Pilgrim. And as we come to learn uh, later in the novel, this is what happens to Billy Pilgrim some 40 years later or so. He goes to this meeting to make a speech, and Katie, as you said, it's on the anniversary of the firebombing of Dresden. Roland Weary, through Paul Lazaro, gets his revenge. But of course, for our novel, because Billy Pilgrim is living in all of the moments, not just this moment, he doesn't actually die. And in fact, when we come to the end of Billy Pilgrim's story, we actually leave him in a zoo on Tralfamador, living with a former porn star who's just had his baby. <laughs> but I'm not going to give you too much more information than that. Our listeners are just going to have to go and read the book for themselves to find out the rest of it. What I want to talk about now is why Slaughterhouse-Five. What was Kurt Vonnegut wanting to tell us about war, about science fiction, about the craft of being a writer? So let's talk a little bit about war. Obviously, he was anti-war. Was he anti-World War I, anti-World War II, anti-war in general? I think he was anti-war in general. I think his experience in seeing a beautiful city completely destroyed is part of what fuels his writing. Yes, I think it's important for us to remember that Kurt Vonnegut himself was in the war, was in Dresden during the bombing. He did survive the bombing of Dresden, and eventually, some 30 years after, did come to write the novel we know today as Slaughterhouse-Five. In the middle of the novel, when Billy meets science fiction writer Kilgore Trout, he just loves his stories. The quote is, And Billy has seen the greatest massacre in European history, which was the firebombing of Dresden. So it goes. So they, meaning Kilgore Trout and Billy Pilgrim, so they were trying to reinvent themselves and their universe. Science fiction was a big help. I think that the point that he's trying to make is that through writing science fiction, he could make sense of his universe because the reality of it didn't make sense to him. Well, this novel just seems to transcend genre. It seems to appeal on so many different levels, and I don't think you can put it into any one category. Katie, you mentioned something else while you were reading that quote, the three words, so it goes. We hear that throughout this entire novel, so it goes. And basically, that's the Tralfamadorian theory of life and death, so it goes, and it will continue to go. So Kurt Vonnegut has his character, Billy Pilgrim, after the death of everything, say, so it goes. 
A plant dies, so it goes. A horse is killed, so it goes. His father is killed, so it goes. They pop a bottle of champagne. The champagne loses its fizz, so it goes. What was this phrase, so it goes? Well, I think it refers back to the concept of the Tralfamadorian idea that death is temporary and it's life, or how you've lived your life, that counts. But does it equalize all deaths? So it goes, whether it's an animal, so it goes, whether it's a person, so it goes, whether it's a bottle of champagne. He's using it for some technique, and I'm not sure I was able to figure it out. Well, I think it emphasizes the deaths, and it feeds into the anti-war theme that here is war, here's another death, and you can have all these deaths all the time in all these different circumstances. So I think he uses it to emphasize death and to make us keep thinking about death and dying. Peter, that's good. I also want to ask you a little bit about how the narrator, who we're presuming is our author, Kurt Vonnegut, sort of insinuates himself a couple of times into the novel as well. As I think we mentioned at the very beginning, the entire first chapter, and also the entire last chapter, are really given to us by the author. We know it's the author talking to us. It gives us a little introduction in the beginning, how he came to finally write this novel, and also at the end, he gives us a little bit of a wrap-up. In fact, I think there are a couple of places in the middle of the novel where he interjects himself as the author. One place is right after Billy is captured as a prisoner of war. They're in a camp with some British soldiers who have been there for a while. The British feed the American POWs this fantastic feast, and they all get sick. So they're in the latrine, and here's the quote. An American near Billy wailed that he had excreted everything but his brains. Moments later, he said, there they go, there they go. He meant his brains. That was I. That was me. That was the author of this book. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. And then the second time that Vonnegut gets in there is when Billy Pilgrim arrives in Dresden for the first time as a prisoner. They're getting off the boxcar, and the quote is, Somebody behind him in the boxcar said, Oz, that was I. That was me. The only other city I'd ever seen was Indianapolis, Indiana. And we know Kurt Vonnegut was, in fact, from Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, Peter, for me, I've got to admit, with the author showing up in the novel like that a couple times, I got a little confused. I wasn't really sure if I was getting Billy Pilgrim's story or am I getting Vonnegut's story. I just wasn't sure who the narrator was at that point. Uh, Did you have any confusions or did it hang for you? You know, it did hang together for me because I felt that this was a really powerful way to make his point about Dresden and about what happened in Dresden. Well, what was his point about Dresden? Ah, that this firebombing had happened. Because I think that when he wrote this book, it still wasn't well known in world history that this had occurred, and that it may or may not have been considered a war crime. And so, by his design or not, I just like the way those couple of times he put himself into the story, because all of a sudden, we had to stand back and say, well, wait a minute, that's right, he was there. 
And does that make it more of a truthful story for you? Does it take it out of the realm of fiction? Well, a lot of times I can't read without having all these current events or historical associations. So you know that this happened to him. You're reminded of it one more time, and it kind of reminds you of Kurt Vonnegut's artistry, the way he wove the story together. Katie, how about for you? Is this an author's conceit for him to show up in the novel, or did it have a meaning for you and a reason? For me, it had a meaning, I think, as Peter said. He wanted to remind us that, yes, he was there. This event was real, and it affected him deeply. And Billy Pilgrim was there with him, but he was sort of an anonymous soldier who was in front of him as they got off the boxcar to go to Dresden. And as I've said in our first chapter, written entirely by the narrator and given to us as being from the author, this is what the author says about the work that's being presented to us as Slaughterhouse-Five. He's actually talking to his editor, and I quote, It is so short and jumbled and jangled, Sam, because there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre. Is that right, short and jangled, because there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre? I think he said a lot about it, and I think he said a lot of it intelligently. I think he did as well. And he just skipped in time, but I don't think it was jumbled and jangled. It was just in pieces. Peter, Katie, before we started our conversation today, I was ready to make an argument that this was actually not necessarily a novel, but a collection of short stories. I'm not sure I'm ready to defend that argument now after we've talked about this book a little bit, but does anyone want to maybe agree with me anyway? Well, I know you want to just keep the conversation between these two covers, but Kurt Vonnegut brings several characters from other novels into this novel. And in that way, I sort of agree with you that it's maybe not a series of short stories, but a a continuation of the story that Kurt Vonnegut wants to tell. You know, Peter, I'm going to jump right out of the covers with you and say, I believe it's Elliot Rosewater, as well as Kilgore Trout, who are both characters in other Vonnegut novels. There's another one, too, Campbell. He's the American who became a Nazi. I remember that character, but I don't remember him in another novel. Mother Night. Ah, yes, Katie. Very good. That's right. Very good. That's why I love hanging out with people who've read a lot of books. Well, let me ask you another question. As we've said several times already now, this is a narrative in a nonlinear form. It skips back and forth. We have time travel. We have mind travel. We don't get any story start to finish. Was that necessary for this novel? Could Vonnegut have told us this story as just a straight story, start to finish, beginning to end? Well, what I kept thinking about when I was reading this novel was Going After Cacciato by Tim O'Brien who wrote several novels about his Vietnam War experience and post-traumatic stress syndrome. Going After Cacciato was a story about a soldier walking from Indochina to Paris. You're not sure if he's really doing this journey or if it's something that he's thinking about while he's on a watch. So this form was familiar to me. And actually, it's the other Tim O'Brien book that I'm familiar with, The Things They Carried. It's also somewhat similar to this in that there were vignettes. And also in that novel, you were never sure, was this an actual experience or was this man perhaps in a hospital suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome? And actually, let me ask you about that. Is it possible that this novel occurs completely in the mind of a shell-shocked POW in either a hospital or a prison camp? Katie? Well, I see Peter's nodding his head, yes, but I'm a science fiction fan, so I want to believe that this is what happened, that he really went to the planet, Talfamador, and they enabled Billy Pilgrim to see all of time, all at once. So that's how I like to read it. Peter, you were nodding your head. Well, I think you can read it that way. You can read it, really, in several different ways. 
Again, since we're mentioning a lot of books and Peter, you got us out of the covers, two other novels that come to my mind are One Flew Over to Cuckoo's Nest, where you're never really sure how much of the story is occurring within the mind of the Indian chief, and also Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. In that book, there's a character lying in a hospital bed, apparently limbless, and things are happening to him, and again, we're not really sure just what's actually happening to him or what he thinks is happening to him in his mind. So it makes me think that one way to capture the war experience for people who have not been there is to present it in this fashion, because I think it's an horrendous experience. So the only way to describe it is in these disjointed ways. This really could be a series of flashbacks. Right. All right, well, let's head into our last segment where you share with us maybe a passage or a favorite moment from the book. Okay. Or perhaps a moment or two that we just haven't had a chance to get to. Peter? Well, Kurt Vonnegut talks about trying and trying to write this novel. And so he goes to visit a friend, O'Hare, who's an old war buddy. And he wants O'Hare to go back to Dresden with him so that it will help him to write the novel. So he goes to visit O'Hare and his wife. Now, at first, she's friendly, but then she starts banging dishes around. Something's bothering her. It's making Kurt Vonnegut very uncomfortable. Finally, he gets it out of her that she thinks he's going to be writing a novel that glorifies war. He says, quote, So I held up my right hand, and I made her this promise. Mary, I said, I don't think this book of mine is ever going to be finished. I must have written 5,000 pages by now and thrown them all away. If I ever do finish it, though, I give you my word of honor. There won't be a part for Frank Sinatra or John Wayne. <laughs> I tell you what, I said. I'll call it the Children's Crusade, end of quote. <laughs> she was my friend after that. And in fact, he does dedicate this novel to a Mary O'Hare, who he tells us is this woman. So again, it's the author coming into the novel, the characters, perhaps a fictional character, maybe not a fictional character. Uh, it's all very confusing. Katie, do you have a favorite passage or line you want to share with us? I do. As I said before, I'm a science fiction fan, so it's a Trollthamadorian passage. Apparently, on the planet Trolfamador, there are five sexes. I'm quoting here. Each one of them performs a necessary step in the creation of a new individual. And they inform Billy that on Earth there are seven sexes, and each one of them is essential to the reproduction of a new Earthling. And I'd like to quote this. They told him that there could be no Earthling babies without male homosexuals. There could be babies without female homosexuals. There couldn't be babies without women over 65 years old. There could be babies without men over 65. There couldn't be babies without other babies who had lived an hour or less after birth, and so on. And I just think that that speaks to how most of us are just so important in the creation and of the continuation of life. And they tell Billy Pilgrim that because we're not in a fourth dimension, because as humans we only have three dimensions, we can't see the necessity of these other sexes. Correct. But there is a plan, and they are all important. Right. But to Billy, it's all gibberish. It happens in the fourth dimension. We don't know about it. Peter? Uh, there is another part in Tralfamadorian lore, because the Tralfamadorians are watching Billy Pilgrim as if he's a zoo animal. And they come and they watch him do stuff. So they never understand where he's coming from. One of the passages is, they couldn't imagine what time looked like to him. Billy had given up on explaining that. The guide outside had to explain as best he could. 
The guide invited the crowd to imagine that they were looking across a desert at a mountain range on a day that was twinkling bright and clear. Now, they could look at a peak or a bird or a cloud or at a stone right in front of them, or even down into a canyon behind them. But among them was this poor earthling, and his head was encased in a steel sphere, which he could never take off. There was only one eye hole through which he could look, and welded in that eye hole were six feet of pipe. (laughs) This was only the beginning of Billy's miseries in the metaphor. Great, great stuff. The moment that really sticks with me was when Billy was watching a late-night war movie, and because he's not in time, he can see the movie backwards. And here's a few paragraphs that explain what he was seeing. American planes full of holes and wounded men and corpses took off backwards from an airfield in England over France. A few German fighter planes flew at them backwards and sucked bullets and shell fragments from some of the planes and crewmen. They did the same for wrecked American bombers on the ground, and those planes flew up backwards to join the formation. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bomb bay doors, exerted a miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers, and lifted the containers into the bellies of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating day and night, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them into the ground, hide them cleverly so they would never hurt anybody again. What a great way to watch a war movie. Anything else? Any other lines? Well, I think uh, his anti-war message is pretty much crystallized in this passage, where he's talking about a book by Kilgore Trout. The name of that book is The Gutless Wonder, and I'm quoting from it. It was about a robot who had bad breath, who became popular after his halitosis was cured. But what made this story remarkable, since it was written in 1932, was that it predicted the widespread use of burning jellied gasoline on human beings. It was dropped on them from airplanes. Robots did the dropping. They had no conscience and no circuits which would allow them to imagine what was happening to the people on the ground. Trout's leading robot looked like a human being, and he could talk and dance and and so on and go out with girls, and and nobody held it against him that he dropped jelly gasoline on people. But they found his halitosis unforgivable. But then he cleared that up, and he was welcome to the human race. Sort of a brutal commentary there, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. If you're a bomber and a killer, as long as your breath isn't too bad, okay. Katie, Peter, let's stop here. I want to thank you both for coming in and having a conversation with me today about Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. Thanks for this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite authors. Yeah, what a great classic read. I'm so glad we did this. It was a great discussion, and I'm glad both of you came in to talk to me about it. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, formerly the Front Porch People. If you'd like to hear more novel conversations, you can go to our new network at evergreenpodcast.com or listen on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. Novel Conversations was produced by Julie Fink and engineered by Sean Rule Hoffman. 
A special thanks to our executive producer, Joan Andrews, and our researchers, Suzanne DiGaetano and Melissa O'Grady. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.